Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. In this episode of The Bell Tale, more cash or more reform? What does Northern Ireland's creaking health service need the most? You could take every single penny from the Northern Ireland Executive's budget and throw it at the health service and it wouldn't be enough to fix all of the problems. The cracks are evident. The politicians have promised change. Routine appointments have been cancelled and injury units closed. These nurses have been supported by other health and social care workers. But the undisputed reality is the health service in Northern Ireland urgently needs more workers. So why has the reform never come about? And how much longer can health service staff take these conditions? Of all these nurses, they're maybe working, you know, 10, 12 hours. They're working maybe one, two hour over their shift every day. And then at the end of the day, they can't afford to feed their family. They're having to go to food banks. I'm joined by the Belfast Telegraph's health correspondent, Lisa Smith. Well, health stories, they're always in the news. They're always going to be in the news. And the National Health Service in Northern Ireland... We always seem to be in a state of crisis or or semi-crisis. But what does it really need? Is it more money or more reform? You could take every single penny from the Northern Ireland Executive's budget and throw it at the health service and it wouldn't be enough to fix all of the problems in the health service. Money is always going to be an issue, but what we really need is reform. That is going to take money to fund the reform. But ultimately, if we reform the health service and run things better, then it will become more efficient. That's the idea. Um, I mean, there's been successive reviews of the health service uh, for the last two decades, all of which have called for, um, you know, extensive reform, extensive changes to to the way we run the health service. It's clear when you speak to anybody, anybody you know, you know, any family, friends, people you speak to in the street, everybody has some kind of connection to the health service. We all require the health service at some stage. We all know people who are on hospital waiting lists. That is probably the biggest issue facing the health service at the moment, and that is going to take massive, massive reform. Essentially, at the moment, if you can pay, you can get at the moment at, in the health service. And that's not the way the health service should be. The The basic premise of the NHS is, is that it's free at the point of access. And we know that just isn't happening at the moment. Now, we've had COVID over the last two years. How much of that is a fundamental factor or has that just simply further exposed uh, an existing problem, a long-standing problem. 
COVID is an issue. There's no doubt about that. It has exacerbated a system that was already on its knees. If you cast your mind back to a few months just before COVID arrived in Northern Ireland, uh, we had the the strike action by health healthcare workers. I mean, that was unprecedented. It was unprecedented. The Royal College of Nursing took strike action. That was the first time they had ever done that. Fair pay. The reason why they did that was because they were pushing for better pay, better conditions. They were pushing for workforce planning, um, safe staffing levels. It's not safe every single day and nurses are putting their registration on the line as well. The pressure is relentless uh, and we need uh, action and this is the best way to get heard at the minute. All sorts of commitments were made to the health unions whenever that strike action was brought to an end at the start of 2020. We simply do not have enough staff we don't have, um, the, the demand has increased exponentially on the health service. We went into the pandemic with a service on its knees. We didn't have enough staff to run a basic service. Health uh, hospital waiting lists were rising massively even before the pandemic. So the pandemic has shone a light on a service that was already broken. So you mentioned some of the big issues there. I mean, we we know about issues with ambulances and there have been many incidents over the last year in which some people may have died waiting for an ambulance. Other people may have waited an incredibly long time for an ambulance. We have issues with A&E, with huge, um, you know, waiting times. We all know people who maybe have been waiting for 10 years on an operation or even to see a consultant. Are these all linked by staffing issues or can we break the issues down? A lot of it is based on the workforce. A lot of the issues within the health service now are related to the workforce. The lack the lack of staff that we have, for, for example, the issues that we're seeing in emergency departments, um, that isn't solely an issue for the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service. That is, you know, an indication of a system that has gone wrong, the entire system. We don't have enough nurses, for, for example, in Northern Ireland. So we don't have enough nurses to work in our care homes. We don't have enough people to work in domiciliary care. We don't have enough nurses working in wards, in theatres. We're having to cancel operations because we don't have enough nurses. We can't get people out of wards into care homes because we don't have enough nurses. Um, and that means that because we can't get people out of wards, we can't get them out of the emergency department. Because we can't get them out of the emergency department, whenever the ambulances turn up at the front door, there's nobody for, or there's nowhere for those patients to go. There are no, you know, there aren't enough staff in the ED to take those patients and care for them. So the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service ends up sitting outside, you know, EDs around Northern Ireland for, for hours and hours and hours before they can hand over those patients. They then can't get back out onto the road. And that's why we see people waiting for hours and hours on floors, on the, on the ground, in the street, waiting for an ambulance. You know, it's, it's a whole system failure. And I mean, the obvious question to me, and maybe it's, maybe it's an innocent question, but why aren't there enough nurses? There has been a severe lack of workforce planning, a severe lack of funding, particularly in nurses. And this is another issue. You know, we saw the strike action. So you have all these nurses, they're they're going out, they're maybe working, you know, 10, 12 hours. They're working maybe one, two hour over their shift every day because of the pressures on the wards. And then at the end of the day, they can't afford to feed their family. They're having to go to food banks in order to, to pay their bills. You know, 
if they so then they're going and working for agencies and nobody can blame them for doing that but that puts an additional um economic pressure on the health service we're not doing things you know efficiently we're not running it economically you know sent in a sensible way um and it it just really the system is broken in that picture, you know, I'm thinking, listening to you, thinking about nurses, thinking, God, I really wouldn't want to be a nurse. It seems like a really terrible situation to be in. I mean, before we go back to talk about reform, how, how did we get into this situation? Is it our politicians' fault? Is it administrators' fault? Or is it some sort of systemic gravity which has caused this? I think it's a combination. Um, you know, we have seen a lot of economic cutbacks. You go back to um, Michael Majimsi's time when he had to start making cutbacks. He didn't have the budget. There were freezes on uh, recruitment. Um, and the, the situation has sort of escalated from there. Again, we go back to the point that there isn't enough um investment in our workforce. There hasn't been the workforce planning as well. We need to put in place a workforce that can respond to the needs of the population. And we're going back to the reform as well and the reviews and the recommendations that we see more care in the community. That investment hasn't gone into the community. You look back at Transforming Your Care, which called for the so-called shift left, so more care into the community. But again, we were told by the health professionals at the time that the funding didn't follow that shift left. So more work was going into the community, but they weren't getting the money in order to fund that. Let's talk about reform. And first of all, before I ask you to give us a history of these reports, we're always saying reform. We all want reform. All political parties want reform. I mean, it, it sounds, it's a great word. It sounds so good. But what does it mean for the health system, do you think? I think it's interesting that you say all political parties want reform when the evidence would suggest otherwise, whenever they get the opportunity to push through reform, it, it really hasn't happened to the extent that we would like to have seen it done. Um, when you look at all of these reports that have been published over the years, starting with the Hayes Review in 2001, they have all said that there are simply too many acute hospitals in Northern Ireland. And that is a fact. Again, it goes back to workforce. We don't have the doctors. We don't have the nurses uh, in order to be able to run all services on all sites in Northern Ireland. And that may be a difficult pill for people to swallow, but that is the reality. Um if we reduce the number of hospitals, how much will that actually solve? Because I think maybe a lot of people might have some doubts about that. Well, I think that that actually in itself is a sticking point. This isn't about closing hospitals. And the most recent report, the Bengoa report, made that point. This is not about closing hospitals. This is about changing the way services are delivered. Um, so hospitals will remain open, but they may not provide every single service. So, for example, breast cancer uh, services. There has been a consultation out on that and that is talking about reducing the number of sites where breast cancer services are offered in Northern Ireland down from five to three. The idea is that we don't have enough staff to run those services safely and sustainably across five sites. If you amalgamate your staff, you, uh, you know, you're consolidating the professionalism, you're uh, allowing people to be seen quicker. That's the idea, is that patients won't have to wait as long, the outcomes will be better. You know, these are all the ideas about centralising services. 
There are difficulties. There are always going to be challenges and concerns around that because it will mean people will have, or may mean that people will have to travel further in order to access those services. And those concerns have to be taken seriously as well. It's all very well putting a specialist service in one site, say, for example, in Altnagelvin. But if you have somebody who has to travel from Kilkeel to get there and they don't drive, how do they get to that service? You know, so you have to look at those issues as well and take that on board. Just to go back, um, just to go back to be to be clear about the reports, um, you mentioned the Hayes report, you mentioned the Ben Gore report. How many other reports were there of similar nature? Oh gosh, there's been there's been numerous. Um, you're talking five, six, seven. I mean, there's all sorts of different reports coming out of reports. So it depends what you want to take into that. Uh, And they all say fundamentally the same thing, that we need to rationalise the services and to make a more efficient service. So they're all sort of crowing the same tune. They are. They're all singing from the same hymn sheet. Now, they all have slightly different ideas about how that should be done or how services should be configured. But absolutely, um, the, the point is that, and, and we have seen this in the likes of Daisy Hill with their emergency general surgery. Uh, it has been suspended. And the reason why we were told by the Southern Trust was that they simply didn't have the surgeons, enough surgeons to offer that uh, service safely across Daisy Hill and Craigavon. So it has been moved to Craigavon um on a temporary basis for now anyway, why they look at surgical services across the trust. You know, if you have um, five or six surgeons, um, you you can't split those across two sites and, and offer a 24-hour-a-day service, you know, safely. You, you've got to look as well at making um, these jobs attractive. And if you are asking a surgeon who's maybe going to have to be on call every other weekend, you know, if they've got a choice between two jobs, they're going to go for the job where they get more time with their family, more time off work, less stress, better opportunities as well at doing more complex operations. You know, they have... um, professional responsibilities in order for them to be able to continue operating they have to do certain oper- you know a certain number of operations every month every year if they're not getting those opportunities at a site because there just isn't the throughput then they're not going to want to work there and that's another issue that the trusts are facing when they're looking to recruit surgeons to work in certain hospitals you mentioned Daisy Hill, and I'm quite interested in that. I was working at the time with Ben Goa. I was working as a reporter in the Newry area. And I suppose one of the layman's criticisms of their Ben Goa report was, well, Ben Goa has never driven from Ballymartin to Craig Gavin. And that was one of the worries that older people, etc., and people who are infirm, and obviously people who are ill, couldn't get to Craig Gavin quickly. Obviously, you can see the big picture as a health editor in terms of economics, in terms of service. But can, can you understand the man in the streets view? Oh, absolutely. I can understand that. And, you know, it's very, very difficult to argue um, that these changes are for the benefit of the patients. Whenever we do 
hear examples of people in Uri or Kilkeel waiting for hours for an ambulance. And, and that is the reality of what is happening. It is happening like that across Northern Ireland. You know, and that, that's one thing that really has to be taken into consideration when it comes to reform. And I've mentioned this already, is that we need to ensure that the infrastructure is there to ensure that patients can access services in a timely manner, particularly in those time-critical cases when you're talking about the likes of stroke, cardiac arrest, heart attacks, that type of thing. You know, it isn't acceptable that you would ask someone to have to travel an hour really, you know, in in those kinds of situations. I suppose the idea of uh, reform and rationalisation of services is that you're running the service um, more efficiently. So ultimately, it will lead to better outcomes for everyone. You know, we need to step away from this, I want to go to my local hospital because it's where I've always gone. As, as a patient myself, if I had to travel 60 miles to a different hospital, but I was going to be seen six months or a year sooner and my outcome was going to be better, I know what I would choose. You know, I live close to, to an acute hospital, but if my child was unwell, I would probably bypass that hospital and go to the children's hospital in Belfast, travel slightly further, but I know I would be seeing the absolute experts whenever I got to the children's hospital. That's the rational case. You've made it very well, but this reform hasn't happened. I have to be a little cynical and say maybe never will happen because politically this seems almost impossible. And every person, everybody standing for election is promising to fight tooth and nail for your local services, your local hospital. So it almost seems seems to me like a catch-22 situation that politically this just cannot happen in the real world. Am I being very cynical? I don't think you are. I mean, I've been covering health for nearly 20 years now. I've been covering these reviews. I've covered every single report that's come out. Um, you know, and what, if you look back at when Bengoa was released, it was released to this great public fanfare. We were told that reform was absolutely crucial and it was urgent. It needed to happen. The health service was on the point of collapse. We had cross-party support at that time. There was massive support for all of the changes and recommendations that were made in this report. And then a couple of months later, the executive collapsed and everything went stagnant. There was a little bit of work. You know, there has been work going on in the background in relation to reform. But, you know, the really big changes, they require somebody who's going to stand over them, rubber stamp them. You know, you you can't come in and close a service. It should be done with public consultation. It shouldn't be done in an emergency situation like we have seen in in the Southern Trust where a trust is forced to make a change to services. You need public buy-in. Will we get the political support? I'm I'm not convinced that we will. They they support the kind of overarching objectives. They say that they want to support the health service and do better for people, do better for the public and patients. But when it actually comes down to making those very difficult decisions, that's just not always the case. But again, it goes back to they do want to pr- protect their constituents as well. And when there is concern in a, in a community, you know, which is understandable in some cases. Uh, you know, you, you can understand why they live in the community. You can understand why they might want to protect a local service. But they also need to look at the bigger picture and sometimes put, uh, I suppose, the overall 
needs of the population ahead of their political careers. You know, when I go back to what happened in 2019, there was when the health minister came down and, or came back, came in, when Robin Swan came in in 2020, there were all sorts of hopes that he was going to start to be able to tackle the waiting lists, the safe staffing. We haven't seen that. Now, obviously, COVID can be blamed for a lot of it, but we, you know, we're moving out of COVID now. We're moving out of that acute phase of COVID. In Northern Ireland, there's always so much political uncertainty. We we see the executive sort of lurching from crisis to crisis. Um, we need our executive, we need our politicians to put the health service first. There are so many historic um, political issues, you know, uh, crisis to crisis to crisis. But really, from my perspective, and a lot of the people that I speak to, the health service is the priority. Without an executive in place, without that three-year budget, that is absolutely crucial to reform. That's something that, that just can't happen if our politicians can't even sit down in a room together and get on. So... If we're going, what's the solution then? I mean, what is the solution? Is 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 a health czar? Could they appoint to someone who will take all the blame, who will take a big wage for a number of years and rubber stamp and sign? Could they just give away the power for the health service and appoint someone with executive powers to do that and wash their hands of it and do what's necessary? I mean, is that is that feasible? Is that is that possible? Is that what is that what needs to happen? It's certainly an interesting idea. I don't know whether the public would go for it because, you know, we're talking about public buy-in to a lot of these um, proposals and, uh, you know, some of these changes will be controversial. And we've seen that. We have seen how controversial they are. You know, there was a, a petition set up around the breast cancer services and the proposed changes to those that amassed tens of thousands of signatures. Um, so whether one individual wants to take that on, I'm not certain. Um, but it might work if they take it out of the hands of the politicians and and give it to someone who, who isn't looking to win votes at the end of the day. Could we be a little focused on the negative? As a health journalist, I would love to spend more time writing about the wonderful work that is being done in the health service, and that is absolutely the case. Every single day, we have people going over and above. The health service simply wouldn't function if we didn't have the staff that we have, like I say, who are willing to work maybe one, two, three hours over their shift. They don't get lunch breaks. You know, we hear about nurses who don't even get to go to the toilet in a shift. We know that, you know, Northern Ireland is, there are some fantastic services, some fantastic success stories um, when, when things are going right. But really, again, it comes back to the workforce and a lot of the wonderful work that's being done and how the fact that the health service wouldn't be functioning today if it wasn't for the goodwill of those staff. And I do think that we need to stop relying on those people. We, we can't keep asking more and more and more of them, which is what we are doing. We are pushing these people to breaking point. Lisa Smith, health correspondent with the Belfast Telegraph, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself with sound design by Graham Davidson. Clips from the BBC, the Northern Ireland Executive and the Royal College of Nursing. If you like The Bell Tale, you can follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.